Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is entering your right ventricle and subsequently your bloodstream. My co-host, Dr. G, is at the helm for this episode. Our guest tonight is Dr. Paul Offit, professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, welcome to HXP. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Offit, Dr. G here. I read your recent book, Bad Faith, and before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are in the medical community and some of the projects you've been involved with on your journey to being this unofficial spokesperson for vaccinations? Well, I guess in the sort of usual arbitrary and capricious ways that people end up where they end up. Um, I did a pediatric residency because I guess I was drawn to to children's health. Um, I was uh, in a polio ward when I was um, five years old. I saw children in that ward um, suffer and it just always stuck with me. I think that's probably why I also picked infectious diseases. Um, I started working with a group at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who was interested in trying to understand rotaviruses, which are a virus that cause fever and vomiting and diarrhea in young children and, and in the world kills about 2,000 children every day from dehydration. So I worked for 25 years with that team. Ultimately, we developed a, um, a series of strains that became the rotavirus vaccine Rotatec, which was licensed and recommended for all children in 2006. And, and I guess I guess the, the, the I guess the bigger issue is is I guess with that I kind of learned how difficult it was to make a vaccine. I mean, to show that vaccines were exactly what they claimed to be. And then I guess associated with Andrew Wakefield's claim that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism, I, I found out how easy it was to damn them. So hard to make them, easy to damn them. And I think that got me interested in trying to explain the science of vaccines to the public. And this is uh, Dr. Wakefield from the UK who, can you tell us a little more about that? It was the MMR vaccine and his article in The Lancet, was it? Exactly. So there was an article published in 1998 in The Lancet claiming that the combination measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine caused autism. It, was a, a, it wasn't really a study. It was a case series of eight children who developed autism within a month of receiving that vaccine. At best, what you can say is that Dr. Wakefield raised the hypothesis. He certainly didn't test it. That hypothesis has since been tested in many studies and found to be incorrect. MMR doesn't cause autism, a choice not to get a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine only increases your risk of getting those diseases and doesn't decrease your risk of getting autism. And this is from extensive studies and extensive research that are going on right now? God, I think there have probably been 14 studies that have, have looked at, at, at millions of children um, retrospectively to see, look at those who did or didn't receive uh, MMR vaccine to see whether the incidence of autism was greater in the vaccinated group. And clearly it, it wasn't again and again and again. Those studies have been done on three different continents. I think the, the question has been asked and answered. So I know uh, safari.org, the, um, the, the major research initiative for all the things that are basically autism related. And they gave a report recently that stated that you know they, we should probably look deeper as a whole into some of the environmental factors that occur during this first year of major childhood development. And I know there's at least from my pediatric rotation, at least what, 25 or 26 vaccines during that period. I mean, outside of purely genetic factors, what do you think are some of the, the issues going on during this first year of development that could be 
uh, an issue here with the, with this autistic boom that's going on. I think it's what is it? One in sixty children is is expected to have autism. Yeah, well, there are 14 different vaccines given in the first few years of life. I guess you can get as many as 26 different inoculations to prevent 14 different diseases. I actually, I don't think um, it, there is an environmental factor, at least not one that's present after birth. Uh, clearly, I mean, there is, there is a genetics to autism. Uh, the, the genes appear to code for developmental proteins that are typically expressed in the first and second trimester. And although I think there can be environmental exposures while the child is still in the womb, Things like valproic acid and thalidomide have both been shown to increase the risk of, of autism. I really don't think, I think if you're autistic at five, you're autistic at two, you're autistic when you're born. So although I, I, I understand there's sort of a lot of interest in trying to figure out what it is postnatally that's causing autism, honestly, I, I, my prediction is going to be they'll find nothing. Hmm. Dr. Offit, if I could just bounce in here, how do you feel about the anti-vaccination movement and the people who are vehemently against vaccines, taking vaccines? Well, I guess there, there's. I guess I see it as, as two different groups. The, the I think most people are not part of an anti-vaccine movement. I think most people just don't fear the diseases. Um, as a consequence, they um, they don't feel compelled to get vaccines. They're looking for reasons not to get them, and certainly you can find plenty of reasons, albeit false ones, on the internet to support your fear. Um, the, the, the true anti-vaccine movement, I'm talking about the professionals, uh, groups like the National Vaccine Information Center or uh, Moms Against Mercury or Safe Minds or Generation Rescue. I mean, those people, the people who dedicate themselves to putting out bad information about vaccines on the Internet, um, I think that they do a tremendous disservice to the children in this country. And in a better world, they wouldn't be allowed to, 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 to put out that kind of misinformation. It's like shouting fire in a crowded movie theater. It puts children and people at risk. Do you think your position at Merck might have, uh, I mean, there's, there's an article that says that, uh, do you still agree with this position that a baby can safely handle as many as 10,000 vaccines safely during infancy? First of all, I don't have a position at Merck. Uh, I'm a, a, uh, a, a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I've never had a position at Merck. So okay. I'm not sure what you mean by that? It's, it's certainly though when we created the strains in the uh, in the uh, 1980s and uh, late 80s and, and early 90s that we thought could be the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, we went to several different pharmaceutical companies in the hopes of finding one who would be interested in making it. I mean, I don't see what the choice was. So I'd love to hear what you think a choice might have been. Pharmaceutical companies are the only ones that had the resources and expertise to make a vaccine, uh, an effort that costs a little over a billion dollars. So that's But that was the statement that you made that a baby can handle as many as ten thousand vaccines safely during infancy. Do you still agree with that position? No, I think I, I probably understated it. Uh, I was asked the question uh, how many different antigens can one uh, handle in the first, in the first, say, in the first year of life? And so one can calculate that. You you know the number of B and T cells that are uh, that are released by the bone marrow, which is in the ten to the ninth uh, region. You know the number of epitopes, which is to say distinct immunological reasons regions that are present on various antigens. And so you can calculate how many different epitopes one could theoretically respond to. If you add up actually all the all the immunological components in vaccines, it totals about, about 155, 160, which is trivial. And so we make 10 to the ninth new B and T cells every day. I think probably the number is probably closer to 100,000. And that would be sort of per day because uh, we're constantly making new B and T cells. I think, unfortunately, that that statement got interpreted by the media as, as saying that I think children should get 10,000 vaccines a day. Obviously, that's not what I meant. I was just answering the question, how many could they get? And I think that's, I stand by that statement. 
do you do you feel that um, there should be a little more integrity as far as journalists and as far as who can call themselves a, an expert in certain fields, especially concerning science, technology, and health? Sure, that would be nice. Um, I'd love to live on that planet. Uh, as, as it stands, we the people who, uh, who choose to uh, represent uh, a science information to the public often have little expertise in science or medicine. Um, and so what they tend to do is they tend to tell a two sides of the story when only one side is supported by the science. I would argue that in the name of balance, uh, they think that this is the right thing to do. I would argue that, that uh, I think in a better world, their mantra would not be balance, but would be perspective. I think that their, their, their job should be to educate the public, um, not simply to prevent, present everything as a controversy when some things aren't controversies. Well, it's, a, it's a very weird time because, you know, most people have considerable access to information and they can you know, for the most part, intelligently decipher the science and research, and shouldn't they be able to make these decisions for themselves? And um, what I'm kind of getting at is, are we approaching an era where, you know, patients no longer see us as physicians, as this kind of white cloak god, and more in this consultant role? Well, I mean, certainly when I was a little boy, I mean, my, my physician would make house calls, which tells you how old I am, and, um, and my mother thought of him as a god. I think, you know, anything he said went. She never questioned anything he said. I, I think uh, this is a woman who was perfectly willing to question people, but she never questioned him, and it was a very sort of paternalistic, arguably condescending time. I think we, we wanted to shake that off, and so we want parents to be participants in, in the decision. And then the notion, and again, I, I know this is going to be unpopular, but I think it's a false one. I think the notion that one can truly educate them, themselves about vaccines it, 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 by looking at, at uh, information on the internet is a false one. I, I mean, so for example, if you're, if you're interested in trying to uh, decide whether or not your child should get a chickenpox, a varicella vaccine, you should read the 300 articles that are out there on chickenpox vaccines. So you can figure out I mean, what is the difference between a vaccine virus and, and the wild-type virus? What are the sequence differences? How does, does the vaccine virus reproduce itself in the body as compared to the wild-type virus? What are the data on safety? What are the data on efficacy? Um, and I think to do that, I mean, to, to look through those 300 studies and then know that, you would have to have some sort of background in in virology, immunology, statistics, epidemiology. I think few parents have that. I think few parents, frankly, uh, can can read those articles, and I think the same thing is true of doctors. I don't. I don't think most doctors, frankly, have that kind of expertise. And so, what do we do? We rely on groups, at least, that collectively have that expertise. Groups like you know the the uh, the advisory committee for immunization practices to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the Committee of Infectious Diseases for the. Uh, you know, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and, and those groups have served us well. But again, I mean, I think you're right. It's very hard to say, you know, trust us, we're experts. We like to think that people should be able to participate in their own uh, health, and so we, we want the parent to make the decision. But if we're going to do that, then we have to be willing to stand back and watch parents make bad decisions that can put their children in harm's way and, and, and ultimately result in their child being hospitalized or die. I, we certainly see that in our hospital. There is not a year that goes by when, where a child doesn't come into our hospital and dies of a vaccine-preventable disease invariably because the parent made that choice. And it's well, a bad it, choice. It seems very clear that there is this growing distrust for whatever reason between the two as far as healthcare professionals and patients. But doesn't shouldn't the onus be on Western healthcare and us as physicians to facilitate or kind of bridge this widening chasm that's going on? I mean, how do we reconcile this? I think our job as physicians is to help parents through the dense thicket of information to make the best decisions for themselves and for their children. I, I think that that means 
providing information in a, in a passionate and compassionate way. I, I'm not sure what the term Western medicine means. I, I think there's there's medicine and then there's not medicine. I mean, good medicine is based on good science, independent of where where, where its origins were. And, and, and so I, I think that's our job. So, I mean, it's clear that we've kind of, we've definitely lost control as far as in the role of patient care, uh, at least in this country for the most part. And it seems that there's a lot of suits and industry executives that are kind of running hospitals and most medical centers now. What's your take on this? I'm not sure what you mean by that question. I, I think that... Um, the, 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 your job, uh, my job as a pediatrician at Children's Hospital, frankly, is to pay little attention to the suits or executives that are running our hospital and to do my job. And my job is to try and provide the best medical care I can and to try and educate the best way I can. I guess I'm not quite as, as, um, as down on the relationship between the, the physician and the, and the patient. Um, i sure there's distrust, but I think, you know, if you, if you act in a trustworthy manner and people see you as, as caring, then I think that can all be bridged. So I really, I really enjoyed um, in your book, you spoke at length, and this is bad faith, uh, about the particulars of several of, I guess, these religious cults that I wasn't too, I know, I've heard of Christian science, I've heard of the other ones, but I was actually kind of startled by some of the belief structures within these indoctrinations. What groups do you feel pose the greatest threat right now as far as just in the United States alone? Well, certainly the faith healers. I mean, there's tens of thousands of groups that are faith healers, which is to say that when their children have bacterial pneumonia or bacterial meningitis or they have they they choose prayer instead of antibiotics they choose um, prayer instead of insulin for diabetes they choose prayer instead of of anti-seizure medicines for epilepsy or prayer instead of bronchodilators for asthma I mean those children don't always die but they certainly suffer and and we stand back so I think that's one group that's certainly um, a problem I think the Jehovah's Witness group um, who choose not to give themselves or their children blood transfusions provide a, a lesser problem in the sense that um, there is clearly Supreme Court verdicts that don't allow you to deny a life-saving blood transfusion to your child. You can do that to yourself. You're allowed to martyr yourself to your own religion, but you're not allowed to martyr your child to your religion. And there are other practices. I mean, there are, um, I think you guys are coming from California, but in the um, certainly in the Northeast, in, in Lakewood, New Jersey, in Brooklyn, New York, there are ultra-Orthodox Jewish moils, moils being the person who performs ritual circumcision, that instead of cleaning off the wound with sterile gauze, um, you know, will use their mouth to clean off the wound, which puts the child at risk for herpes, which can cause permanent brain damage or be fatal. We see that. We've been at least 14 deaths from, uh, from that. In, is in is that still going on? Oh, sure. Yes. So, Dr. Offit, do you do you think that the vaccine injury risk and weighing the the risks versus taking a vaccine and and the disease? I mean, it, what what is that? I mean, how do you calculate that? What are the risks? I, mean, I would say, you know, it's certainly if you look on the internet, you would you would assume falsely that the risks associated with getting a vaccine include include a variety of chronic diseases like autism or diabetes or multiple sclerosis. Uh, or chronic bowel disease, all of which are incorrect, have been shown to be incorrect. I mean, if you, if you what are the real risks of vaccines? Certainly pain and tenderness at the site of injection. The swine flu vaccine that was given in 1976 was found to be a rare cause of, of something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which was an ascending paralysis, but hasn't happened before or since. Um, the yellow fever vaccine has been associated with about 55 deaths since its inception in the, uh, in the, in the 1930s, so, um, and, and that's been primarily in the elderly. Measles containing vaccine can cause a lowering of the platelet count, a so-called thrombocytopenia, which can cause a transient, you know, petechiae, so-called, it's like broken blood vessels, but that is transient. 
Um, I think that the pandemics of vaccine that was used in Scandinavian countries, which was a, that, that sort of, you know, 2009 swine flu strain that was adjuvanted with uh, squalene, seemed to be a rare cause of narcolepsy, which is a, a disorder of uh, wakefulness. And that's it. Uh, honestly, I think that's it. No, I'm sorry, I take it back. There also, you, you can, if you are severely allergic to, uh, to gelatin, there are some vaccines which have gelatin in that, so you can have an immediate type hypersensitivity or allergic reaction, that, which is why you're asked to stay in a doctor's office for about 15 minutes after you get a vaccine. But, but that's it. So with that said, should vaccines be forced on a populace? <laughs> Force. That's the word we want to use. Um, it's striking to me that somebody like Chris Christie in New Jersey will say that when it comes to vaccines, it's a parent's choice. That's what he said. Um, now, he lives in a state that has a car seat requirement. You, you, if you live in the state of New Jersey and you were found not to put your child in the car seat while you're in the car, you will get a ticket. There's a name for the program. It's called the Click It or Ticket Program. There's no philosophical exemption to car seats. There's no religious exemption to car seats. The reason? Car seats are safe and effective and they save lives. I would argue that vaccines are no different. Why, so, I mean, should, you, why should you be allowed to put your child at unnecessary risk because of a false belief you have about vaccine safety? Why? I, and this, this is pure devil's advocate here, but I mean, as far as, as as far as slippery slopes go, where does this go as far as civil liberties are concerned, as far as, you know, compulsory vaccinations? Why is it your right to put your child at, at, at risk? Why, why is that? Is that a civil liberty? Do we have, I would argue the child also has rights. And frankly, if you look at the 14th Amendment, it allows for equal protection under the law, which is to say children also should be equally protected, even if they happen to have parents that have false belief, beliefs about vaccine. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why children's rights aren't also part of this. I mean, I think that in a better world, you wouldn't need to have vaccine mandates because anybody who really understood the data about vaccine safety and efficacy would get them every time. I mean, I think I have a pretty good understanding about vaccines. Both of my children are fully vaccinated and therefore I benefit my children and I benefit society. I think that, that if, if, if everyone had a, a good understanding about vaccines, they would all do that. But some people have have misunderstandings about vaccine safety, so they decide to put their child at unnecessary risk, which can occasionally kill them. And so I don't see why that should be your right as a parent to put your child at unnecessary risk any, risk, any more than it should be to, to not put your child in a seatbelt or in a car seat. That sh also should not be your right. Dr. Offit, if sorry to interrupt here, but do you, do you hold, is this true or not true? Do you hold a patent on a vaccine that you developed through Merck? I, I am a, a researcher at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Me and my two co-inventors have a had, had to have a patent. So you're not you're not earning millions of dollars on royalties through a patent that you developed with Merck. That's correct. I'm not. I make as much money off the sale of a rotavirus vaccine as you do, which I'm assuming is nothing. Okay, fair enough. So, so then the question becomes, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because it's the right thing to do. I, I think it surprises some people that I take this, this position forcefully. They assume I must be in somebody's pocket. And I am. I'm in the pocket of, of children, of children's, because I care about children. That's why I do what I do. It's why we created a vaccine. And it's why I continue to do this, even though I'm asked questions like this about why, you know, I, I must be in someone's pocket. I'm not. There's a there's a whole you know there's a whole stream of information on the internet that really disagrees with you. I mean it it, so I guess, it I guess you're, you're hated on the internet. On the internet so, so, I guess, 
So what you're saying to me is that, that maybe it's possible that you're allowed to lie on the internet? <laughs> I'm just saying that people perceive you in a certain light. And so that's what we're doing here. We're clearing that up. Yeah, well, so I think, here's the way it works. I think that if, if there were clear data that vaccines caused the problems that they caused, we would hear about those data. But what happens is, is that it's like the old, you know, legal mantra, the aphorism. You know, when, when the law's on your side, you argue the law. When the facts are on your side, you argue the fact. When neither are on your side, they attack the witness. And so I, that's, that's what happens to me. I think I'm uh, attacked at personally because there aren't data to support that point of view. And so, and they know that the media loves that sort of story. The, you know, the, the, the person who's in the pocket of industry story, that's a story that will always sell, even when it's not true. And if you keep doing that, if you keep repeating the lie over and over again, then, you know, some people will believe it's true, even when so it's we, not true. We, we appreciate, um, you know, the transparency and the clarity for our listeners. It's just, I think it goes back to what we were originally talking about as far as having that that seed of distrust that I think people have with the medical establishment and they just probably, they might be looking for any angle to kind of plant that seed or let it grow a little bit. But I mean, we can, we can, let's shift back a little bit more to um, your book right now. And um, as far as you were talking about faith and these religious cults, where do you, where do you draw the line between faith and delusion? That is a great question. And I would say that when I wrote this book, that was the question I struggled with the most. I, I, I wrote a book. I wrote, the, wrote uh, one chapter about a man uh, named Larry Parker who wrote a book called "We Let Our Son Die," which may sound like it's a mea culpa, but it wasn't. Actually, while he let his son die, he saw this as an expression of his faithfulness that he was able to maintain his faithfulness uh, throughout that. Now, this was a man who was very sophisticated uh, medically. I, I had a chance to talk to him uh, on the phone. He was. He had his son. His eldest son had uh, type one diabetes. He'd been giving that son uh, insulin, and then he just decided to stop and pray for his insulin for his diabetes to go away. Now he was part of a mainstream church in Barstow, California. It wasn't a faith healing church. People were arguing with him that he shouldn't do that, but he did that. He he uh, he prayed until his son died. He watched him die over a several day period. He knew he knew exactly what the symptoms were of someone who had too much and too little insulin because he was very sophisticated med medically. When his child died, he then at the funeral service uh, tried to resurrect him. He declared the 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 uh, the uh, funeral site as holy ground. He asked people to take off their shoes. Um, and then when his son uh, wasn't resurrected, spoiler alert here, um, he, his son wasn't successfully resurrected, um, he then uh, didn't go to the funeral, to the actual burial portion, because he believed that his son would be resurrected after four days, much as Jesus was resurrected after four days. And so then, that, so he didn't even go well, that, to the that's just science. I mean, everyone knows that. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so is he, is he delusional? I, I think, is he, is he, I arguably psychotic? I mean, does he, does, I think the answer to that question is in a better world. Yes. I think he is phenomenally delusional, but remember that, that, uh, there were many people in his prayer, prayer group who along with him were praying, were praying for his son instead of giving him insulin. There were hundreds of people that went to that, uh, to the, the, uh, funeral service where he was to be resurrected. Regis Philbin had called. He wanted to come. A lot of people wanted to come watch that resurrection. I mean, people like Oral Roberts, who's a popular evangelist, has claimed that he's done resurrections, and no one sort of put him in, in uh, an institution after he made that claim. And many of his believers or followers believe that that's true, too. So, I, I mean, if we're going to label him psychotic, then we have to label tens of thousands of faith healers as psychotic. If we're going to label him as psychotic because of his belief about resurrection, similarly, we'll have to 
label a lot of people that way too. So it becomes sort of a norm, you know, that the that uh, the, these kinds of beliefs. It's a hard question to answer. I wish I had the answer. It's, uh, you actually were gonna, you answered the next question I was going to ask you because according to you know the DSM five, and for our listeners, that's basically the bible for mental illness and psychiatric disorders. I mean, if you look at some of the beliefs, you know, not to denigrate Christianity, but contemporary Christianity, and you mentioned Oral Roberts, according to DSM-5 and the, the diagnostic stand, uh, manual, that's psychosis. So what's, what's going to happen between science and religion and this gap or this, this amalgamation of the two in the coming years that you see? Well, it, it, I think the fix is actually easy. The fix is a legislative fix. I mean, this, this faith healing stuff doesn't happen in, in England. It doesn't happen in Canada. Because if you do that, if you medically neglect your child in the name of God, you will, uh, you will likely go to jail and you will, your children will be placed in foster homes. That's a real disincentive to do that. And so they don't have that problem. And frankly, we didn't have that problem in this country up until the mid-1970s. But in you know, under Richard Nixon's administration, there was uh, something passed a, a called CAPTA, Child Abuse Protection and Treatment Act. Ironically, it was a chance for the federal government to pro provide millions of dollars to states to states to help them recognize child abuse and and uh, and treat it and prevent it. Um, but there were two prominent Christian scientists in Richard Nixon's administration who 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 saw an uncomfortable light about to be shown on their religion. Then so they insisted that you couldn't get federal money until you had a religious exemption to child abuse and neglect, including medical neglect, on the books in your state. And so all 50 states passed those laws in the mid-1970s. This is the CAP, the CAP Act you're talking about? So yeah, so cap. That's right. And if you read that caveat that's put or the codicil that's put into that cap, that it's clearly written by a Christian scientist. I mean, they describe the person who prays as a practitioner. They describe the prayers as treatments. That's the way Christian scientists describe their 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 healings. And and uh, those two men ultimately went to jail. Um, one of them was Nick Nixon's uh, chief of staff, Bob Halderman. The other was the domestic policy advisor, John Herlichman. Both went to jail for their role in Watergate. But they did this right before they went to jail. So, I mean, you don't have to answer this, but uh, I'm assuming Offit is, is a Jewish name. Are you a fellow member of the tribe? Um, Offit is a shortened form of the name Offshevitz, and yes, I'm Jewish. Oh, so. The healthcare programs under Ob Obamacare, how do you feel about them? Well, you know, I'm probably not the one to ask that question. I mean, I'm uh, a basic science researcher, and so uh, although I do practice medicine, I do it solely for inpatients in our hospital. I think you're probably the uh, the people who are who you should talk to are the people who are executives in our hospital. They probably have a much better sense than I do. I'm that's below my, it's way above my pay grade. I don't know. So, uh, I'm not being honest. I, I should know more. I actually don't know. I, you know, I just, we see our patients, we bill, other people take care of that. Hopefully it's all working out. I don't know. Uh, the, re the reason I asked the Jewish thing, I was just curious as what to, uh, you know, what your religious upbringing was as far as your background growing up and, how that's changed with your medical practice, writing this book, you know, even the process of writing this book, how's your spirituality or your take on religion changed? Well, my father was, uh, was very religious as are currently my brother, my father since passed away, but my brother and sister are, uh, are quite religious. Um, I'm not, I, um, you know, I, I'm not religious. And frankly, when I, I wrote this book, you know, after sort of talking to these parents and writing story after story of people, uh, medically neglecting their children in the name of God, I thought I would sort of come down in the way that, you know, that uh, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or um, Sam Harris did that sort of, you know, kind of militant atheism that, you know, the religion is, is, is uh, illogical and potentially harmful, but I didn't actually. I mean, I actually read through the Old Testament and New Testament pretty carefully. And, and, and although I'm Jewish, I was really taken by 
the, the, the figure described as Jesus of Nazareth. I was. I, I, you know, I mean, it's frankly just independent of whether you believe in the existence of the Supreme Being, and I don't. But uh, Or you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and I don't, um, because I don't believe in the existence of the Supreme Being. Or you, if you don't, even if you don't uh, see the Gospels, at least the four Gospels that made it into the final canon as, as an accurate reflection of Jesus' life and work, you, you, you know, Jesus lived between roughly 4 B.C. and 30 A.D. You have to be impressed with the, the figure described as Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, this was a man ahead of his time. He, at, a t- at his time, you know, uh, child abuse was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Um, you know, abandonment was common, infanticide was common. Children didn't matter. They were property. They, they were really no different than slaves. That wasn't Jesus. I mean, Jesus stood up for them. The, the quote that I actually I wrote a piece uh, for the New York Times called uh, What Would Jesus Do About Measles? But the, the, the uh, quote that I use, and that's from Matthew 25, 40, you know, verily I say unto you what, you what you do unto the least of my brethren you do unto me. I mean, that, that could be emblazoned on the entranceway of every children's hospital in the world. I, I'm just, you know, just really impressed by that. And, and I don't understand when I lived through the 1991 Philadelphia measles epidemic and, you know, we had 1,400 cases of measles and nine deaths that centered on two fundamentalist churches that, that refused not only vaccines but medical care for their children. I mean, that statement that was used when these children would, would die was, you know, Jesus was my doctor. I don't get it. I really don't get how you, you, you arrive at that conclusion from reading the New Testament. And quite frankly, I was really upset that members of the Christian community in, in, in 1991 in Philadelphia didn't stand up and say, this isn't us. This is an unchristian thing to do to put your children in harm's way. Dr. Offit, uh, you, I think you were quoted in a New York Times editorial in 2013 that people should skip the supplements. Uh, I mean, why do you say that? Well, I, I, it's just, I mean, it's like all things. I think, um, I think there's no such thing as alternative medicine. I, I think if a medicine uh, works, then it's then it's then it's medicine, and or an alternative medicine works. If medicine, if an alternative medicine doesn't work, then it's not an alternative. My my feeling about dietary supplements is that they should be held to the same standard as drugs. I mean, they are drugs. They have a physiological or pharmacological effect. So let's test those drugs. Let's see whether they really are safe and effective. Let's see whether or not you know the the, the label actually reflects what's in the bottle. You know that, that, that these things are manufactured under good manufacturing practices. I mean, where is the evidence that that these uh, su- that these substances are what they're claimed to be? I just think we're, we're getting duped that we allow ourselves to be duped. I think a lot of the issues are at hand are that a lot of the studies have shown the synthetic bio uh, the synthetic vitamins and the synthetic molecules, and there's some studies that show you know increases in cognition and mood for bioavailable um, vitamins and minerals, but it's, it's all, you know, it's, there's lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics, you know, we could, we could generate any kind of information we want from anything that we look at. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, ever since 1994, this industry has been loosed from the Food and Drug Administration, and, and that's not a good thing. Um, so it's the wink and nod of the industry, right? I mean, they don't make specific medical claims because they can't. If they made a specific medical claim, then, you know, they would be regulated by the FDA. So they say things like, you know, for Saul Palmetto, that it supports prostate health, even though the, the studies that have been done show that it does nothing to shrink prostates in men who have benign prostatic hypertrophy, or that, you know, the garlic is, is concentrated garlic is good for cardiovascular health, the wink and nod being, you know, that it lowers very low density lipoprotein, which it doesn't. Uh, and that's been shown again and again. So uh, it, it's whenever these, these 
products have been pushed to the test, and I think there's 80,000 of them in the market. There's probably not 20 of them that have been really tested in any sort of prospective controlled way. They never seem to do what they're claimed to do, you know. So shouldn't, shouldn't the consumer be upset about that? Hmm, that's a very good point. Dr. Rafi, we really do appreciate your time. Uh, there, You do have a new book out. Where can people find more about your work? So you can, uh, well, I mean, the book is called Bad Faith, uh, When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. Um, it can be purchased in bookstores or on the internet. Um, so um, take a look. And your website? Actually, I do have a website. It's, I'm embarrassed to have a website. I'm not <laughs> sure it's the one who put it out. I, I, I just, I'm just not the kind of person that has that, but it's, it's paul-offit.com. I think, yeah, .com. Okay, paul-offit.com. Well, Dr. Offit, thank you so much for being here. This is The Human Experience. My name is Xavier, my co-host, Dr. G, and we are out here. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Offit.